0: Father God, we thank you that, because of Christ, your Son, we are not alone. That as your children, we have fellowship with you, and Christ is with us till the end of the age. And especially when we gather as His church, and so we pray that this time in your Word would be for our good, for your glory. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. May I have a seat. Well, welcome to church. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me in them to the book of 2nd Samuel. We are going to be in 2nd Samuel chapter 15. Um we are back in the book of 2nd Samuel. Last week we took a one week break and that was because one of our elders in training, Vin, uh, preached for us from the book of Ephesians. And um, he's not here this week, and that's because he went on vacation, not because he did a terrible job and we kicked him out or anything like that. It was good. We were really glad that he was able to to do that and to um, to put into practice some of the skills and ways in which we've been trying to raise up our elders in training. Uh, Greg will be doing it for us in a few weeks to come, so look forward to that. But we're back in Second Samuel chapter 15. And just to kind of give you a um, breakdown of where we are in this book. If you've forgotten, um, at this point in the book of Samuel, David has already had his infamous sin with Bathsheba. He has uh, committed adultery with her. He has uh, conspired to have her husband killed, and uh, David has been called to account for that, right? The prophet Nathan came to him, and he told him that God saw what you did. He was displeased, and there will be consequences for it. Now, David repented, he was forgiven by the Lord, and yet the consequences were still experienced in the life of his family. First of all, we saw that his oldest son, Amnon, ended up <coughs> uh, raping his younger sister, Tamar, his half-sister. And that led to a fallout where Absalom, his third son, ended up murdering Amnon in this um, kind of plan where he got him alone out in uh, another part of the country. He had him murdered. And because of that, Absalom now was sent into exile um, for a few years, but had finally come back to Jerusalem. And even though he's back in the city of David, his relationship with David, his father, is not healed. And so we're in Second Samuel 15, and we get to see what happens with Absalom and what will happen as it kind of continues to unravel. 2 Samuel chapter 15, starting in verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. This is the word of the Lord. Do you have an earliest memory that you can remember, that you can picture in your mind? Um, it's kind of a mystery to me how certain events just seem to stick in your brain in a way that's so poignant and clear. And maybe you're thinking about something right now, but for me, uh, one of these memories that, that stuck in my mind was when I was a young child and my family went to SeaWorld. And most of you are familiar with SeaWorld. There are shows, there are rides, there are animals, there are also kind of exhibits. And so it's kind of a combination between a zoo and a theme park. And at SeaWorld, there are these dark exhibits where you can walk through. If you haven't been there, you can walk through these aquariums, and you can see all the different animals, and it's very dark so that they can light up the aquarium, and you can look inside and see. And I remember at SeaWorld, I was with my family, uh, my father and my mother and my brother and my sister, and we were walking through one of these exhibits, and I got interested in something that I was looking at, and so I began to look at it more closely, and then when I looked up, I was separated from my family. Maybe you've had a similar experience. I looked around, and I was pretty young. I was probably four or five at the time, and I remember being afraid and, and and a little bit of a moment of panic, kind of running around until I saw in the distance my father as he was about to leave the exhibit. So I ran up to him, and I grabbed his hand, and to my horror as a young person, and you guys probably know what's going to happen, I looked up, and I saw it wasn't my father at all. It was a man who had the same shirt and shoes. And the question that... I have for you from that story is simple. Have you ever ended up following the wrong person? Perhaps you can relate to that story of literally doing it. Perhaps it's something more weighty. Maybe in your life you followed a leader or a person who turned out to not be the right kind of person. Maybe someone who who they didn't portray themselves to be. Maybe you were part of a movement that ended up somewhere you never expected Maybe you gave hours of your time and uh, tons of your money to someone who turned out to not be a person to be trusted or believed. See, as we look at this passage today, the Bible warns us that there is a lot of danger in following the wrong person or the wrong people. In fact, in the New Testament, at least four times, there are, are large sections where the Bible gives great pains to tell us that there are people who will try to lead the people of God away from devotion to Christ And towards themselves. And the story we read about today with Absalom shows us that that is nothing new. That's been around for a long time in the history of God's people. Despite David being God's anointed one, despite David being a king who vanquished all these foes and brought peace and prosperity to a degree to the people of Israel, despite the justice and goodness that the people experienced under him, we see in this chapter that the people of God are somehow led into rebellion by Absalom. But how does it happen? How does it happen so seemingly easily? How could the people of God give up God's anointed king for a leader who would take them where they ought not to go? How could someone who wasn't the king deceive so many away from the king? That's what we're going to answer in this passage, if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. So let's get into it. As we look at this passage, why do we sometimes follow the wrong people? How can even the people of God be deceived? And we're going to see in the story of Absalom the answer to this question in three parts. We're going to see how someone deceives the people of God, both in David's day and even in our own. We're going to look at the strategies of the enemy to deceive you and me. And if we look at this passage, the first strategy that we see in this passage is that deceivers are Likable. Okay, deceivers are likable. Very simple. The first verses of these chapters show us, of this chapter, shows us that Absalom's plan to take over the kingdom begins with this desire to make the people like him. It reminds us that those who would deceive the people of God are those who make themselves likable to us, attractive, becoming. Absalom knows how to play people like a fiddle, and this is what we see in the passage. Verse 15, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now, what does this mean? Now, Absalom, in the story of David, we already know from a previous chapter that he was the poster child of the younger generation, okay? So he was, according to the Bible, like the most attractive guy of the next generation in Israel. He had this wonderful um, head of hair, and so some of you understand how that could be desirable because maybe your head of hair is no longer so wonderful, but... He was attractive. People liked him. They they liked to look at him, and Absalom knows it, and he decides to go ahead and leverage it. How? In the passage, what we just read, is by purchasing a new Lamborghini, paying a bunch of attractive people to be his friends, and then posting TikToks of himself with his entourage so that all of the other young people can look at him and like and subscribe. Not exactly, right, but pretty much that's what the text says. When it says Absalom got himself a chariot, And horses and 50 men to run before him. That's ancient stuff, but make no mistake. These are the actions of an influencer. That's what Absalom is trying to do. You see, in the time of David, chariots and horses were, were known, but they were mostly known in the countries outside of Israel. Israel didn't use chariots and horses in their warfare, but other nations that were more seemingly powerful, other nations that had even oppressed Israel used chariots and horses in their armies. And so Absalom gets himself a chariot and some horses. And then he gets his entourage of men to run before him. It's almost like he's paying a, a posse of friends to be there anytime people would see him. He would look popular and powerful. He looked cool. He looked modern. He gave a sign of strength. He showed to the people of Israel that he was with the times. Absalom appealed to the flesh of the people by showing them what they wanted to see. They wanted to see a leader who looked a certain way. And Absalom played the part. What else? Well, it wasn't just the brand and the image. Absalom worked hard to not just show himself to be a certain way, but by telling the people what they wanted to hear. When I was younger, I received from my dad, I think, a a copy of the best-selling classic book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Anybody read that book? You don't have to raise your hand, but you probably have. It is a classic. 1937, Dale Carnegie wrote this book. It sold millions of copies. People want to know how to Win friends and influence people. And in this book, in part two of the book, Dale Carnegie gives six ways to make people like you. Okay, so if you're struggling with that, listen right now. Number one, become genuinely interested in other people. Principle two, smile. Principle three, remember that a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. So use people's names. Principle four, be a good listener. Principle five, talk in terms of the other person's interests. Principle six, make the other person feel important. And this book always struck with or stuck with me both as a guide for kind of how to treat people to some degree, but more as a reminder of how easy it is to be manipulated and how easy it is to manipulate others. I wonder if Dale Carnegie read the story of Absalom when he was writing his book, because this is exactly what Absalom does. He takes these tricks of the trade, he sets up camp, and he tells the people what they want to hear. He influences them and gets them to like him starting in verse 2 we see that Absalom rose early and stood beside the way of the gate and when anyone went to Jerusalem to seek an audience with the king he would stop them along the way now to help us understand what's going on one of the duties of a king in the ancient near east was to protect his people in war right to fight the wars and then in peacetime to give them justice to kind of judge cases before him in a way that made sense. In those days, there was a system in place in Israel and in other countries where someone who had an issue of injustice, maybe they had a complaint against a friend or they had a problem with a neighbor, they could get that settled if they couldn't settle it themselves with the elders of the town. right? So you would go and some people would help you. The older people in the town who were supposed to give good judgment would give you a verdict. But if you disagreed with that or if they couldn't figure out the case because it was so complicated, they might push it up the chain of command. So you would go to the elders of your tribe and the elders of the tribe would look at the case and they would use their wisdom to execute justice in that scenario. But even if they couldn't figure it out, if it was something so complicated or so weighty that they couldn't quite get their minds around it, they would send you up then to the highest level, which was the king. But you could go to Jerusalem and Jerusalem was a travel, but it wasn't impossible. You could go there, you could bring your case to the king to receive justice. And that's what the text tells us the people Absalom talked to were doing. They wanted to talk to the king himself to receive justice. And these people who came to Jerusalem with these grievances and these hard cases, and they were probably people of influence and means because they had something worth bringing to the king in the first place, they would come to Jerusalem and Absalom would stop them at the gate of the city. Now, the gate of the city was a place where business took place. It was also a place where a lot of official business might have happened like um, hearings or, or announcements being made. But the actual place we were supposed to go for justice was the gate of the king's palace. And then you can imagine in the city of Jerusalem, there is this first gate they have to pass through to get to the palace, which is inside the city. And so Absalom would stop them at the gate of the city and he would reach out and tell them what they wanted to hear. Verse 3 says Absalom would reach out and he would say, where are you from? Where are you from? You guys have ever been to New York City or another uh, kind of urban metro area and walked through the tourist parts, and there's some guys with tables set up. What do they always ask you when you walk by? Hey, bro, where are you from? And I was listening to one guy who used to do this, and he said, this is not by accident. This is actually on purpose. They have thought about every possible question they could ask to start a conversation with a random person getting off the subway, and they determined by experience that the best question to ask someone is where are you from, Why? Because everyone has an easy, honest answer. It's disarming. You can always say where you're from, and you can pick up a conversation. No one's going to be like, I'm from nowhere. I'm the man from nowhere. Everyone has a home. Everyone has a place they are from. And so Absalom, again, he knows the tricks of the trade. He says, where are you from? He engages in conversation. They tell him what part of Israel they're coming from. Absalom finds out what their concern is, and the verse tells us in verse 3 that Absalom would tell the person. No matter what their complaint was, no matter what their concern was, he would say the same thing. Your claims are good and right. You're right. Too bad there's no one designated by the king to hear you. You guys see what's happening? No, no matter what they said, whether they were right or wrong, he would say, I agree with you 100%. I only wish there was somebody who could help you out, somebody like me. And in verse 4, he said, if I were judge in the land, then people like you could come to me, and I would fix all the problems. I would give you the justice that you seek. And it turns out that Absalom, he's just as cunning as his cousin Jonadab. He's a smart guy. He knows, again, how to show the people what they want to see and how to tell the people what they want to hear. He presents himself as a man of the people. Just to give us kind of the Full picture of this in modern-day terms, I I imagine him like that politician, right, who stands at the sliding door at the HEB, showing how down-to-earth he is, shaking people's hands, listening to their ideas, talking about their pets, making empty promises, talking in terms of their interests, making them feel important. So what does all this say? Absalom, Dale Carnegie, the people of Israel, in a way that would have made Dale Carnegie himself smile. When they would bow down to him, what would he do? He would say, stop, don't bow down to me. Instead, come here, shake my hand, give me a hug, give me a kiss. Don't call me prince, just call me Absalom. The text ends this section in verse 6 with the statement, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This phrase is so important to this text. Sounds romantic, right? Like, oh man, I would love for someone to steal my heart, but it's not. It's a phrase that elsewhere in the Bible really means just one thing in Hebrew, to deceive. To steal hearts means to deceive in Hebrew. So Absalom deceived the men of Israel. He tricked them. He fooled them in this way. He played the long con, pretending to care about them, pretending to to be about their interests, showing them what they wanted to see, telling them what they wanted to hear, treating them like his friends so that he could ultimately use them. And they went along with it because he was just so attractive, and likable. I don't know how on the nose we need to be here, but the text shows us at least this truth, that just because someone is likable, just because someone says the things I want to hear and shows me what I want to see, is not a good reason to follow them. And it's so easy, though, in the church to do this. Right? If a person's house is big, if he drives the right car, if his wife is attractive, if he has the goods of the world, or maybe if he is tall and good-looking and successful himself, that's who I want to follow. And you see it in the church all the time. You see that the things that the world esteems as being worthy of being followed is what we in the church often copy in the exact same way. And yet these things are not shown to us by God and his word as reasons to follow someone. On the contrary, in fact, the Bible often says those are reasons to be afraid. The Bible says those who desire to get rich fall into temptation and a snare. It says charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. Paul says that there was a man named Demas who was falling after Christ but became in love with the world and deserted the cause of the gospel. And so the question is, as a church, who will we listen to? Who do we follow? Who do we esteem? Is it those who say and do the things we want them to do? Is it those who who look the way we want them to look? Or is it those who actually say the things God wants us to hear and look the way God tells us they should look? That's where the question lies. The novelist Maya Angelou once said, people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. It's a good quote but we need to realize this works for the good and for the bad. Those who want to deceive the people of God will make you feel good about yourself. Every complaint you ever had was right. Every problem you ever had was never your fault. Every issue in your life, man, blame it on somebody else. Just listen to me and I'll make it right. There's much to say about the cult of celebrity in the church, but we have to move on because it's not just Absalom's man of the people shtick that we see. In verses 7 through 9, we see Absalom's deception isn't just about getting people to like him. It involves something even worse. It involves him pretending to be a man of God. If deceivers are likable, then just as often we need to recognize that those who want to deceive God's people appear to be godly. They appear to be godly. Absalom shows us an age-old trick to deceiving the people of God. If you talk about God enough then the people of God may start to listen, even when they shouldn't. Look at verses 7 through 9. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. So at the end of four years, Absalom is back in Jerusalem, and he has caused some problems. We know he was causing some issues with Joab, burning his field and stuff. Absalom spoke to his father, asking him to let him go to Hebron to fulfill a vow made to Yahweh, the Lord. When you see the Lord, all caps, you guys know we've talked about this. That is the personal name of God in Hebrew. It's been translated into L-O-R-D, capital letters, but it is Yahweh, God's personal name. Now, this is interesting because if you look at these three verses, there are a lot of Lords in there. Right, Just so many times, Absalom saying, Lord, 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 Lord. There's, um, at least three times he says the name of the Lord exactly. But in all the texts, in all the time we've seen Absalom so far, he's never talked about the Lord. In fact, in all the time we've seen Absalom in this story, he's never once shown himself to be someone who cared at all about spiritual things. He had no interest. He wasn't doing righteous things. Now, he did care about his sister, which is an admirable quality, but Absalom is not shown to be a spiritual or pious guy. He has no hint of God-fearing character. He is a deceiver. He is a murderer. He's a man who has a sense of action about him, but nowhere does it say he is a man of God. Nowhere does it say he is someone who cares about the Lord, and yet all of a sudden, all of a sudden, as this plan is taking shape, Absalom is talking about Yahweh all the time. First with David telling him, in fact, that he had come to Jesus in the wilderness, right? He had a come to Jesus moment. What does he say? When I was in Geshur at the home of my grandfather, that's where he was hanging out, living in exile for murdering someone. I made a vow to God that if Yahweh would bring me back home, if he would give me what I wanted, then I would offer worship to Yahweh. Now, The text is very deliberate, okay? This is the inspired word of God. This story is written by the Holy Spirit for a man who hasn't talked about God yet. All of a sudden, there's a whole lot of Yahwehs being thrown around. You guys ever seen this? You guys know what I'm talking about? All of a sudden, someone is happy to talk about Jesus left and right. We're headed into uh, midterm season, right? Even this week, I was reading the news, and I've been reminded that every politician who would never spend their time in repentance, worship, or scripture is happy to stop by your church if you'll give them a chance, happy to shake hands and speak from the pulpit and say a prayer and praise Jesus. There are plenty on both sides of the aisle people who will want to 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 get something from you and are willing to talk about the Lord to do it. Companies and websites and books designed to simply make money off believers. I remember for a while, and maybe you guys remember this too, about 10, 20 years ago, there was this endless stream of best-selling books about people who died and went to heaven. You know, there's like at least like three or four of them, and they were making millions of dollars. And, and you know, when I read these books, I was like, man, I thought Paul was special for seeing heaven, but I guess not. Any Joe Schmoe can just go to heaven and come back and write a book about it. No, you can actually make a lot of money. The years have revealed to the surprise of very few that most of these books weren't even the idea of the author himself, but of corporate imagination. How could we market this to the people of God? Now, why do I say this? Just because someone talks about God doesn't mean they're a deceiver. Okay. Obviously, just because someone is talking about God doesn't mean you should distrust them. But let me put it a little bit further. Just because someone believes in God, doesn't mean they aren't a the deceiver. Just because someone is a fellow Christian, quote-unquote, doesn't mean you shouldn't watch out for what they're saying, what they want from the people of God, and what they might be leading you to. Christianity may no longer be in vogue, but there is still plenty to be gained by aligning yourself with Jesus and talking about God, even in the 21st century. In fact, I remember a brother who was highly involved in politics, who who would meet with politicians. And he told me, man, it's so cool to see how many of these politicians are people of strong faith. And I hope they are. Don't get me wrong, but the question I had was, could it be that they know that your faith is important to you? That's why they're talking that way. Just because a man or woman talks about Yahweh or Jesus or quotes a Bible verse or says a prayer doesn't mean the people of God should follow them. Now again, I'm not saying be distrustful of everyone, but just think about it for a moment. Who is more likely to mislead and and fool the people of God? Who is more likely to deceive a church? Is it an atheist or is it a born-again Christian? Quote-unquote. Who is more likely to mislead the people of God? A Muslim leader or a pastor? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians that Satan disguises himself as what? An angel of light. I think we're on solid ground to say that every successful deceiver of God's people has at least given lip service to God. And so how do we discern? Well, look at what Absalom says here and who he actually shows himself to be because it is instructive. Absalom says, I made a vow in Gesher at Aram saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. Now, on the one hand, there's nothing wrong with making vows to the Lord. Okay, In the Old Testament, you're not supposed to take the Lord's name in vain, but the Torah actually gave instructions for if you did make a vow to God, how you were supposed to fulfill it. And you were supposed to fulfill it quickly. You were supposed to do it in the proper time. You had to fulfill a vow made to the Lord your God. But if we really listen to what Absalom is saying, then perhaps his his supposed zeal for the Lord would have been more easily ferreted out. Absalom's vow was to Yahweh, but really it was about him, right? He said, if the Lord would give me something, if he would do what I want him to do, then I will worship him. Now, just as an exercise, let me ask you the question. Does this sound like the words of a man who has been living for the glory of God? Does this sound like someone who is living in worship of his Savior? Or does it sound like someone who sees a benefit to be gained from aligning himself with religion? Though it's not a comical thing that happened with Absalom, it reminds me of a slightly comical story from my life, okay? Um, when I was in high school, my sister Tiffany, who's a couple years older than me, she had a friend, a couple of good friends that she would bring to church. And one of those friends... Uh, was this guy who shall remain unnamed. And he started to come to our youth group. And one night, uh, when they were seniors, he gave a testimony. And I don't know why the church did this. They had every senior give a testimony, regardless of knowing what they were going to say. So he gets up there, and he's going to give a senior testimony. And uh, he said, earlier in high school, I was going through a really tough time. Okay, I don't know why I'm smiling. He had a tough time. He was going through a tough time, and uh, he, he he prayed to God. and He said, I know you're not supposed to do this, but I made a deal with God. I told God, if you help me out in this scenario, if you deliver me from this hard time, if you make my life better, then I will serve you and I will never doubt you again. I will give my life to you. Well, he said, God heard my prayer and he answered it. And God did, in fact, deliver me from my hardship. And he did so by sending me an angel. And this was very puzzling to us, right? We waited for his clarification. We're like, what are you going to say? What's this guy talking about? And he looked up at the crowd And he looked at my sister and he said, Tiffany, you are my angel from God. And then he must have seen everyone's looks and the look on her face because he walked straight off the stage from the mic into the parking lot in his car and drove off. Legends say my sister is still sitting in petrified horror in that room to this day. It's a funny story. I don't mean to embarrass that guy. But needless to say, his deal with God to serve him if he sent him an angel. It didn't work. Right? He, he actually did not walk with the Lord. As far as I know, he, he left the faith. And though I pray he will return to the Lord one day if he has not already, I know that that promise he made to God wasn't a sign of a relationship he had with Jesus. It was a sign that he wanted something from him or from my sister in that case. Though he talked about God, it was really about him. See, Absalom's words revealed his heart. Even in talking about Yahweh, even in in speaking about these things, he showed what was truly within him. Those who are raised around the church and the things of God are the most skilled at speaking God speak. Talking the talk, saying the phrases, talking about blessing and love and faith in Jesus, but we have to look past, we have to read between the lines, what does a person really mean? What is a person truly about, especially someone that we're going to trust and listen to and follow? Are they actually about God? Do they submit to his word, not just in their lips, but in their life? Do they care about his gospel? Do they live for his kingdom? Do they follow his rules? Do they love the things he loves? Or is it somehow all working for them? And in the Pilgrim's Progress, um, there's this story about these guys who who appear to be well-studied Christians who, who come and they talk about, like, is it okay for a, a pastor to preach the word of God so he can become richer and more influential and have the things of the world? And they come up with all these reasons why, and it sounds awesome. If you read it, you would probably agree with them. And the Christian shows up and he says, didn't Jesus say, if you followed me for the bread, you were wrong? How much more so if you think following God for what he can do for you is sin? And so we need discernment to know are the people who are speaking into my life pointing me to Jesus as the solution or to themselves paul said it in the scripture reading those who arise up in the church to speak twisted things what is the reason what's the reason they do it it's not because they want to get excommunicated they're going to rise up and speak twisted things to draw people to themselves it's all about them unless we act like it's not easy to be fooled in this way we have to see that david is seemingly fooled as well He lets Absalom go off to Hebron with his entourage, with all these guests. And he says, go in peace to his son, whose name actually means my father's peace. And as far as the text goes, it seems that David is fooled just like everyone else. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, remarked how easy it is for us to believe things about people when we want to see the best in them. How a parent of a wayward child will jump at any sign, no matter how small, that the child might be turning to the Lord. And I understand, I'm not I'm not saying that, that that's a bad thing. I understand why you would feel that way. But in the same way, oftentimes the people of God jump at any chance to say that person must be a believer, must be a Christian because they have something that looks good in the world's eyes, because their church is big, because they're popular, because they're rich, because they're successful. I would probably do the exact same thing as David and the people of Israel in this case. So Absalom goes off with his entourage to Hebron, to offer sacrifice to the Lord. And this leads us to the third way in which we see this plan unfold, and the third way we see how deceivers try to trick the people of God. Thirdly, deceivers love to be popular. They love to be popular. The men of Israel don't just follow Absalom into rebellion because they like him and because he talks about God. But thirdly, in this passage, we see that they follow this fake king because other people follow him as well. Look at the text starting in verse 10. Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo, and the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. What we need to see here, though it is a story of the past, is that he uses this strategy. Notice that in the conspiracy, Absalom desires to take the throne of David by force, and he does so by having other prominent people side with him. This is part of his ingenious plan to make it seem that as many people as possible are part of Absalom's rebellion. So let's break it down. First of all, he sends these messengers to all Israel, and he says, you need to tell them Absalom is king at Hebron. Now, why does Absalom choose Hebron? He could easily have um, sacrificed at Jerusalem, right? That was a possibility by this point in time. He could have done these things elsewhere, but he chose the city of Hebron for a purpose. Way back in um, the earlier part of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 2, after Saul died, you'll remember that as there was kind of a civil war going on, Saul's son Ish-bosheth was declared king by the other tribes. The tribe of Judah declared David king in Hebron. Right? So you understand this kind of this, um, this situation, this precedent being set that even though no one else knew it, the people of Judah said David is the king and they did it at Hebron. And that message was sent to all the people. And so that's not ancient history. That's just, you know, a few decades before Absalom knows what David did in Hebron. And so the point was this. If they could tell everyone that Absalom had been declared king in Hebron, the other tribes would assume that Judah was with him, right? That Judah was on his side, that the leaders of Judah had sided with Absalom against David. What else? Secondly, Absalom in verse 11 takes with him 200 influential men from Jerusalem as his guests to the supposed sacrifice. So he takes these 200 men, and this again is an ingenious plan, because the author of Second Samuel tells us these men who went with him, they weren't part of the conspiracy. They didn't know anything about it. They, they weren't actually in on the plan, and yet the people in Jerusalem had no way of knowing that, Right? You kind of understand what's going on. He takes all these guests. He says, come to my party in Hebron. They don't have cell phones. They have no way to text back and tell the people in Jerusalem what's going on. And so when Absalom says, I am now king, everyone in Jerusalem will think, dude, those 200 people went with him. Those 200 men are part of the conspiracy. This is something big that's happening. It's Kind of like when you start a church and some church growth guru says, on your first service, make sure you have as many people as possible. Doesn't matter if they're Christians. Doesn't matter if they're going to come to your church. Doesn't matter if they're breathing. Just have the bodies in the seats, and the people will come. We can be unwitting accomplices sometimes in deception. Thirdly, Absalom is offering the sacrifice, and notice he actually does offer the sacrifice. He's willing to put the check in the offering plate. He invites a man called Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. Now. This guy is an important man. Ahithophel, it turns out, was one of the most trusted advisors in Israel. He was considered one of the wisest men of that time. And he was, to David, a counselor. He was someone that David looked to for help and advice often. In fact, the Bible tells us in the next chapter that when he spoke, it was as if he were speaking the very words of God. That's how people kind of esteemed his voice. Now, why would Ahithophel turn against David? Most of the people with Absalom are the young people. They're the Gen Zers, but none of the baby boomers went with him except Ahithophel. So why would he do that? What, What happened to him? Is he old? Is he senile? No. But Ahithophel, it turns out, is not just David's counselor. He's the grandfather of Bathsheba. And so there is something personal going on here. At some point, maybe David totally bypassed his advice when he did this thing with Bathsheba and killed her husband. Maybe Ahithophel saw as Absalom was talking about the failures of David. He saw firsthand, yeah, that David did have problems. David was a sinner. David did something terrible as king. Perhaps there was a sense of disappointment that he had with David. And Absalom used that to get Ahithophel on his side. We don't know exactly, but this famous leader joins up with Absalom against God's anointed king. And this is, of course, Absalom's plan. Right? If I can get someone with a big name, if I can get the Ahithophel to endorse me, then I can get a following. Then I can get some people on board with my rebellion. It reminds me of an old, um, slightly problematic movie from 1999 called Never Been Kissed. You guys seen it? Drew Barrymore. She plays a novelist who sent back to high school as an undercover student. You can see why it's problematic to write a report about what cool kids are doing these days and. Um, And then her brother joins up with her, her younger brother. So these two adults are hanging out with all the kids in high school. Um, But the problem is she's highly unpopular. And her younger brother, who was a popular guy, tells her a secret one day. He says, you know what? You don't have to get everyone to like you. You just need to get that one popular kid to like you. And everyone else will too. That's what we see here. The Judahites have sided with Absalom, supposedly. These 200 men from Jerusalem have supposedly sided with him. But beyond all that, this guy, Ahithophel, this famous teacher, is on Absalom's side. He must be a guy that we can trust and follow. And you can see how the dominoes fall. The People of God who have experienced great peace and deliverance and justice under David, they hear that Absalom is getting popular. and That piques their interest. And more and more people, the text says, began to follow up with him. Not because anything's wrong with the kingdom, per se, but because this is the man of the hour. This is where the wind is blowing. This is where the tide has turned. And Absalom uses that popularity to deceive them. Verses, or Verse 12 says that in light of these things, the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Now, these verses tell us something very interesting and a little bit discouraging about ourselves. Oftentimes, the people of God follow the wrong people. They follow the wrong person simply because other people are following. We're not led by the Spirit of God. We're not led by studying the Scriptures. We're led by where the wind seems to be blowing. And Absalom's conspiracy grew, not because the Spirit of God was with him, but because everyone assumed that everyone else who was important was also. What about for us? Do we follow and listen to people because they are speaking the word of God or because they seem to be popular. And we live in a day and age where discernment is needed. Now, you guys know us as pastors. We do not want our church to be a church where all we do is drink the haterade, okay? We're not out here trying to hate on people. But there are people who want to deceive the church, who want to teach things that are contrary to the word of God, contrary to faith and repentance, contrary to the gospel itself. Do we listen to people? Do we discern rightly? Or do we just go with what is popular? There are false teachers and false doctrines and unbiblical things that are always being believed and tossed around and shared on social media. And oftentimes, the false teachers are very skilled at being popular. And again, this isn't our normal course of action, but just take, for example, Bethel Church, right? Which we don't want to throw people under the bus unnecessarily, but I believe that this... Movement in California is a movement of popularity apart from Scripture. It's a mega church in California that promotes a number of extra-biblical teachings. The doctrine of the church is not sound at all. There is no discernment, as far as I can tell, about what they teach and who they allow to teach. And the music, which is very popular, is not scripturally solid. In fact, most of the things I've read from Bethel make me think that they are a ministry of signs and wonders, not a church that that preaches repentance and faith. And yet, what do they do? They invite every famous Christian musician. In fact, they'll invite any famous pastor to come speak with them so they can get that endorsement, that supposed endorsement, because they know the power of popularity. In a more general sense, there are many supposed Christians out there who will tell you, you don't need to worry about sin. Don't worry about judgment. Don't worry about forgiveness. Those things are outdated. Those things are wrong. Those false teachings are popular, but they're not from God. Don't let popularity let you be deceived. No matter who endorses it, we must reject those who reject the truth of God's word. Unless you think it's just on one side or another. I remember in seminary there was a pastor from our seminary who was getting successful, and he was personally endorsed by John MacArthur. Personally, this guy is a guy that you should listen to. This is a good guy. His book had the endorsement of John MacArthur on it. But while we thought he was faithful, he started to drift. And he would still leverage that old endorsement for his kind of uh, preacher street cred. And sadly, some of our classmates and friends were deceived by him until he made shipwreck of his faith and the faith of so many others in his church and in the world. Deceivers love to be popular. They love to have the right people think highly of them. They love to have a big name stop by. Absalom made himself seem to be the man of the hour with Ahithophel and these 200 men and and getting endorsed at Hebron. But if we choose who to listen to based on who seems to be the next big thing, we will put ourselves at risk of being led away from Christ our King. So what do we do? Be good, Bereans. The Bereans examined the scripture so they would not be led astray even by someone like Paul. They examined the scripture so that whatever they were being taught was backed up by the word of God themselves. Follow those who lead not just by their credentials or endorsements alone, but by their faithfulness and closeness to the Bible and the God of scripture. So that even if that person falls or fails, we won't because our faith wasn't in them, but in God himself. Now, let me say something quickly about discernment, because we brought up a few things, a name of a church even. True discernment is required, but it's not just about kind of figuring out who's in the right camp and who's in the wrong way. It's not just about saying, if anyone associates with this person, they're good. If anyone associates with this person, they're bad. It's about rightly handling the word of truth. And this is why, as a church, it's so important for us to train up Vin and Greg to be men who can rightly handle the truth in teaching and preaching. We need to have discernment that's not based on kind of these these extra-biblical things, but based on the Bible itself. If this person is saying what God says, then I'll listen. If not, then I'll turn away. We need discernment, being able to look past popularity to compare every person who wishes to teach and lead with the Bible itself. Now, we've talked a lot about deceivers. Where does this leave us? How do we land this plane? The truth is Absalom was a false king. And we'll see very quickly, even though this is a big deal and he has this whole uprising, that it doesn't last very long. It gets quashed pretty quickly. But the other truth is that Absalom was actually a son of David. He was a prince. He had a legitimate case that he might be the next king of Israel. But his actions in this chapter show us that he isn't the son of David that the people should have followed. And he's not the son of David that we need. We call this series King of Kings because we're talking about how all of First and Second Samuel point us to that future son of David, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so as much as Absalom is a warning against deceivers, and we talked about false teachers and, and the problems with that, Absalom is also an encouragement for us to look to Christ. The true son of David and the true king we need to contrast Jesus with this false king. You see, when Jesus came, he differed from Absalom in every way. First, the Bible says that when Jesus came to earth, he had no beauty that we should desire him. He wasn't naturally attractive. He wasn't flashy. He wasn't a man with a social media face. He wasn't a guy who would have all of the image. No, he was about substance. Secondly, The Bible says Jesus didn't care about appearing godly. What do I mean by that? In many ways, Jesus did things that annoyed religious people. right? He did things that the religious leaders said you shouldn't do. Not because the Bible said you shouldn't, but because they had come up with all these rules about what could or could not be done. Jesus didn't care about appearing godly. He cared about being godly. He cared about actual godliness, about truly living for God, about righteousness and holiness and love and prayer and service and compassion and faith. And thirdly, though some follow Jesus, ultimately the Bible says he was rejected and unpopular. Kind of a funny thing to say about the founder of the world's biggest religion, but he was. He was unpopular even among his own people. And the Gospel of John says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. In fact, the people of the world hated him so much that they took the perfect son of God. And you guys know the story. The only man who never sinned, God incarnate Himself. They crucified him on the cross. They said, give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. But by his death and resurrection, those who believe in him were given the right to become children of God, and friends, and family members, and subjects of the one true king. And so as we kind of end this, here's what we need to see. It's not just a passage about a rebellion. It's not just the passage about how we can avoid being deceived. The passage about being close to the king we really need. As I think back to that early childhood memory of SeaWorld, right? Following after a man who wasn't my father. I realize now that the reason I followed the wrong man wasn't just because he had the same shoes as my dad. It was because I wasn't staying close to my actual dad at all. Right. If I hadn't wandered off, if I hadn't gone off by myself to look at the exhibit, if I'd stayed near my father, I would have known who to follow. And when I think about this passage with Absalom standing at the gate, kind of catching people on their way in to deceive them, I realize the same is true for them. What would have prevented the people from having their hearts stolen from David? Well, if they would have just walked past the city gate a mile more to the palace to be near the true king, to be with him, to hear from him, to receive from him justice. And so it is for us. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11 of his concern for the church. He says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Is there's anything that we can do to keep us safe from deceivers, false kings, and those who would lead us away, here it is, simple and pure devotion to Christ himself. To not be drawn to what is just simply attractive. To not be fooled by those who would use God and his name for their own means. To not be swayed by what seems popular in the moment, but instead to hold tightly to Christ the King. To cling to him and his word. To be sincerely and purely devoted to Him alone in your thoughts and in your hearts and in your actions and in reality. And may we as God's people follow only Him. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that in light of Your Word, You would help us to draw near to You. Help us to receive Your Word with fear and trembling, knowing, Lord, that while we are seeking to be discerning and we we want to know the truth, There are many dangers, and you warn us of them in your word. But you remind us in your word and in this passage that there are people who wish to deceive the people of God, not always knowing what they're doing, but always seeking to draw us away from devotion to Christ and to devotion to other people and other things and other causes and other doctrines and whatever. And so we pray, God, for your help with that. We know that in Scripture, Jesus says that his sheep will hear his voice. So God, would you help us to be a church that is purely and holy and sincerely devoted to your Son, Jesus, that cherishes His Word above any other, that is not drawn to this side or the other because of what's attractive or popular today, that we be a church that loves the truth and knows that Christ is the truth. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.